Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Sightless Fun, a podcast about board game accessibility for the blind and visually impaired. My name is Ertai Shashko, and today we will begin by talking about some of the cool games I've played recently. Then I'll continue with two featured games for this episode. We're going to cover Love Letter and Skull. We're covering two games this time because they are very small and light games and we will conclude with our discussion topic of the day which is print and play games. In the past couple of weeks I finally got the chance to try Dice Forge and Nyctophobia. They are both quite unique games and I had great time playing them. In Nyctophobia up to four players are the hunted and one of the players is the hunter hunting the players trying to murder them. The interesting thing about this game is that the players are playing the game blind. The game provides four completely dark glasses through which you can't see anything. And you're navigating the map by touch alone. So the hunter creates the maze, positions everyone on the map, and then the hunted need to navigate the map and find the car to call for help just by using their fingers to feel around the map. I recently posted a visual accessibility analysis on the site for Nyctophobia, so if you're interested in how accessible the game is, I'll have a link to the post in the show notes. The second game I recently played was Dice Forge, and the components are fantastic, and I really like some of the things they've done to make the game accessible. So you can fully play this game blind, Basically, in the game you have two dice and you use them to gather resources, but the twist is you can then use those resources to upgrade your dice. There are plenty of dice faces that you can purchase and they are removable, so you pop out your old die faces and then replace them with upgraded ones. Then there are also cards that you can purchase that give you various abilities and points. The game plays in 9 rounds and... Once everyone is familiar with the rules, it plays quite fast, usually around 30 to 40 minutes. Our first feature game is called Love Letter. Love Letter is a game for 2 to 4 players, designed by Seiji Kanai, and it has recently been acquired by the publisher Z-Man Games. The game is very light and it plays in about 10 to 20 minutes, and the goal for the players is to take a love letter to the princess. In love letter there are a total of 16 cards. Each card has a value from 1 to 8 and also lists a character with a special ability. The way that the game is played is that each player receives a single card in the beginning and on a player's turn the player draws a card from the deck and now they have to play one of those cards in their hand. When they play a card, the special ability on the card is activated and you need to do whatever the special ability says. For example, the guard card, of which there are 5 in the deck, has a value of 1, but the special ability of the guard is that the player can choose any other player and guess what character they are holding in their hand. So if I play the guard card, I can choose a player, let's say Tom, and say 
Tom is holding a prince. Then, if Tom is holding a prince, he is eliminated from this round. Otherwise, the game continues to the next player. Other characters have other special abilities. For instance, when you play the Baron, you compare the card that you have in your hand with another player card. The player with a higher value card stays in the game while the other one gets eliminated. When playing the Prince, you can choose another player and that player needs to discard the card that they are currently holding in their hand and draw a new one. The Princess is the most valuable card. It has a value of 8. But the problem with the Princess is that you are not allowed to discard the Princess. So for instance, if someone plays the Prince card and you're holding the princess and they ask you to discard your card and draw a new one, if you discard the princess, you automatically get eliminated from the game. So game continues until all but one player remains in the game, or if the deck is completely drawn, the remaining players show the cards that they have in their hand and the player with the highest valued card wins this round. The player that wins 7 rounds wins the game. Since there are very few cards, the game plays quite fast and is very light. It's a great filler game to play when you are waiting for your group together. For instance, you have like two, two, three or four players that have arrived and you're still waiting for the others to come. It's a great quick game to play and can also be quite entertaining. I had my family, my mom and brother tested out. At first they didn't want to play it because it sounded very simple to them. But after trying it for a round, we ended up playing it for a full hour and it was great fun. The game can be quite accessible, even though it's a hidden information game. There are multiple ways you can identify the card that you're holding in your hand. First off, you can identify a card based on its value, because each character has its unique value. and this number is well contrasted and is located on the top left corner. If you cannot see this number, perhaps you can identify your card by the image of the character. And if that doesn't work, the character name is also listed in large letters, as well as the ability that they can do is listed under the character name. If, you, if your sight is very poor like me or you're completely blind, you can easily mark the cards with stickers. Because there's a total of 5 guard cards in the game, you can ignore those and leave them without any stickers, so they can be easily identified. But for the others, there are either 2 copies or 1 copy for each card. So you can start with the priest, which has a value of 2, and put a sticker on the top right corner. Then for the Baron, which has a value of 3, you can put a sticker in the middle left edge of the card. Then for the Handmaiden that has a value of 4, you can put a sticker on the middle right. Then continue for the Prince, which is number 5, and put a sticker on the bottom left. Then the King comes at a value of 6, put a sticker bottom right. And for the rest, the Countess and the Princess, you can put two stickers. For instance, for the Princess, you can put a sticker 
on the top right corner and the bottom right corner. And for the countess you can do something like top right corner and bottom left corner. Or some any other combination that you would like so that you can identify them. Because the number of the cards is very little, you can easily memorize this. And you can play the game only by feeling the stickers to identify your cards. There are plenty of other games out there that you can use this technique. So basically using the edges of the cards to mark them and after memorizing them to easily then identify them. Uh, the only thing that you might need is to ask other players to confirm that the card back is facing the correct way. So in case you rotate your card, you might do a mistake with identification. So always try to make sure that the card is the right side is facing upwards and you don't accidentally have the card facing downwards. That's the only thing that you need to be careful about. So there you have it. That's Love Letter. Very simple game, quick and can be quite fun with the right group. It's not very competitive and I also highly recommend it as a warm-up game. Our second game of today is a game called Skull or it's also known as Skull and Roses. It can be played from 3 to 6 players or if you have 2 copies you can play up to 12 players. It is designed by Herve Marley. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. It is published by Asmodee Games and it plays between 30 to 40 minutes depending on the number of players. Skull is a bluffing game where each of the players belongs to a bike gang and each of the players has four coasters. So the game instead of having cards has nice wooden beer coasters and on those coasters there are two different symbols. There can be a rose or a skull. Each player receives four coasters, three of which are roses and one of which is a skull. Once a first player is chosen, on that player's turn they choose one of their coasters and put it face down on the table. Then in clockwise order the next player chooses a disc and places it down on the table and play continues until it's the first player's turn again. Once it's the first player's turn again, the player can put another coaster down or they can do a bid. They are bidding on the number of roses that they can reveal, starting with their own. So for instance, the first player can say, I can open two roses. Then the next player either needs to raise the bet to let's say three or four or pass. Once everyone but one player has passed or someone has done the highest possible bid, the highest possible bid is the number of coasters that have been put down on the table. So if there were six players in the game and there was only one uh, round of placing uh, coasters and the first player started the bet, the highest possible bet would be six. Once a player has won a bet and needs to start opening the coasters, they first need to start with their own coaster and then continue by choosing other players' coasters to reveal. If they reveal the number of roses that they have bid, they win a point. If they do this twice, they win the full game. If you hit a skull, you will lose one of your coasters and then a new round begins. So everyone takes back the coasters that they have placed on the table. The person that hit the skull 
is the first player now and a new round starts. If you lose all your coasters, so if you hit a skull four times, you are eliminated from the game. Skull has been a great success with my group and we finally found a game to play at the closing of a board game night. It's a very fast game, does not demand a lot of brain power to play, yet it still provides a high amount of tension to be extremely fun. One of Skull's biggest advantages is that it can be taught in like two minutes. The game is very visually accessible. The symbols are quite large if you have some vision and you should be easily able to determine whether a coaster is a skull or a rose. But if you can't do this, you simply need to mark the skull with a sticker so that you can feel this by touch. Now, a disadvantage that visually impaired or blind players have are that they cannot look other players in the eyes and see if they can call out their bluffs. Now, if all of the players are good at bluffing, there's no disadvantage. But if some of the players are bad at doing this, then sighted players will have some advantage over the blind players because they can see either their body language or some weird smiles and call their bluffs. But anyway, it doesn't really take away from the game much and usually players, as they play more, they get better at the game and eventually all of the players will be quite good at bluffing and it will be nearly impossible to tell when they have placed a skull or a rose on the table. So, that was skull and now we can move to our discussion topic of the day, which is print and play games. I chose this topic today because both of the games I talked about, Love Letter and Skull, I have print and play versions of them. For Love Letter, I managed to find a re-theme, basically different art on Board Game Geek. I printed out this version because I failed to find the game in the game store that we have in my country. For Skull, the game was also not available here. And I could have ordered Skull online. However, I first wanted to test to see whether my group would first like it. So a friend of mine created in about 10 minutes a PDF of a grid of Skull and Roses cards. We printed that out on cardstock. And my brother cut the cards and... We had the game ready in about 40 to 50 minutes and the time of going to the printing shop is included there. Print and play games are not only good for your wallet, but they can also be perfect when visual accessibility is considered. Some publishers provide official print and play files for their games. They can either be free, like in the case of Secret Hitler, or... When they do a Kickstarter, they sometimes have a minimum pledge of 5 or $10. And with that pledge, they provide the PDF files for you to print and try the game. So since print and play games are quite cheap to acquire and produce, 
One of the biggest benefits from the accessibility part is that you can easily modify the components without having to worry too much about them. The problem with modifying components for retail games that you purchase is that if you decide that a game is not for you or down the line if the game is not being played enough by your group or you are bored with that game, you'd probably try to resell it. And having modified components may bring down the value of the game drastically in the second-hand market. So with print-and-play games, because it's very cheap and you probably won't be selling that, as usually that's not allowed, you can easily modify the components after printing them. You can put stickers, you can cut, you can glue stuff. So from that aspect, print-and-play games are perfect when you're trying to improve the visual accessibility of a game. You can also modify the games digitally while they're still on the computer. For instance, if the letters are small or if you don't like a color, if you're, let's say, colorblind and the designer has used uh, a color that you cannot see, you should be easily able to do modifications to the graphics so that you can improve the playability of the game. Secret Hitler, for instance, provided free print-and-play files. However, those files were in black and white, and there were other people online that used those files and colored them and published colored versions of the same files. So, Board Game Geek has a nice print-and-play community where you can find a large amount of games and I highly recommend checking that out. Unfortunately though, there are some drawbacks to print-and-play games. The first one, which applies to us as visually impaired or blind people, is that you would most likely need help from a sighted person to cut and sometimes perhaps glue some of the components, because cutting those printed files without sight can pretty much be impossible. For my Battlestar Galactica Express version that I printed out, my brother pretty much spent between two and three hours cutting all the components and gluing them together. Even though we printed out the die faces on a self-adhesive paper, <laughs> there were a total of like 120 die faces to a apply to the dice so that took a long time and it still required to be precise and you really need to rely on your site to apply those so for us it can be a bit problematic to produce print and play copies but if you have someone around that is willing to help you that would be fine another con of print and play games is that usually the artwork is not the final one or sometimes there is even no artwork basically it's just text and simple icons or some publishers provide their prototype versions of the game so you might not have the final game now when talking about art because i really can't see the art to appreciate it i don't really care about the artwork myself personally 
because I simply can't see it to care about it. I just see a mix of colors, but usually I cannot make out the figures that are drawn there. Now, for us that can see it, that would be fine. I mean, you can just pick two blank cards and just tell me this one on the right is a skull, this one on the left is a rose, and I would just use my imagination to draw those graphics. But for sighted players, and you usually are playing with sighted players, having something without art can be quite boring and pretty much not appealing to those that are sighted. So yeah, from that perspective, that's one of the negatives of print and play games. Though game designers and publishers usually do a pretty good job lately and they provide very high quality print and play versions. So overall, this shouldn't really be too much of a problem. Perhaps if you look for older games or games that are not that famous, you might have this problem. But if a game is popular and there's a free print and play version out there, someone has usually improved it, even though if there's no art, someone has usually applied their own graphic design skills to improve the games. One final thing I want to say about print and play games is that they can also be good for changing themes. For instance, Secret Hitler is a theme that may not appeal to some people, so not everyone would like to be a Nazi. And thanks to the print and play community, there are many re-themes out there for that game. One of the most famous one is called Secret Voldemort, and it basically uses the Harry Potter theme for the game. There's also one that uses a Star Wars theme, and there's plenty such re-themes for other games out there as well. So that is also one of those benefits that you get with print and play games. To summarize, print and play games are great for your wallet, so it's a very cost-effective way to get into the hobby if you are new to it. You can get quite a lot of games and good modern games for free. It can be great to improve accessibility because it's very cheap to produce and to modify as long as you have someone who is sighted to help you cut the final components and apply some glue if necessary. That would be all from me for this episode. If you have any questions or feedback or would like me to talk about some game, you can email me at sightlessfun at outlook.com. You can also reach me on Twitter by tweeting to at sightlessfun. You can also check out our website where we post visual accessibility analysis of games and generally talk about board games at www.sightless.fun. Thank you very much for listening and remember, you can still have fun while being sightless. This episode was hosted by Ertai Shashko and edited by Alpai Shashko. We'd also like to extend our special thanks to Fighting Windmills for allowing us to use their music in our podcast. You can find them at fightingwindmillsmk.bandcamp.com.
www.sharpshooting.com.